Hey, welcome to On the Nose. I wanted to talk about my car. I love my car a lot. Like, it is basically my dream car, ignoring like a couple of like little flaws that I feel like the company could have done better with, like such as the the rubber gaskets or whatever around the outside of the windows. They used like really cheap stuff that like started bleaching from the sun within a month of me getting the car, which is like, come on, come on, you guys could do better. Do you love your car? Do you really like vehicles in general? Motorcycles, boats, whatever. And what is it? What is it that you love about it, gets you excited about it. So for me, I love the way the car looks. I love the way the car drives and sounds. Like they put so much like attention into these details to make sure that, you know, because so, okay, so I, my car, right, is a Mazda Miata MX-5 RF. RF is basically means it has a hard top instead of a soft top. It like folds into the back of the car. So many of the details in my car just feel so intentional. Like the way that the gauge cluster looks. I mean, obviously every part of car is planned and intentional, but there's just a way that the car comes together and works that feels like the intent was I uh, just, I don't know. I don't even know the right word. So I have a relatively nice car because I have a Miata. They don't lose value the way that other cars do. And um, the resale on them is pretty easy because people want them, even though they don't lose the value. And, um, I felt kind of weird getting a car that was so nice because I'm on disability and all that, but I used money from when I sold my house and I promised myself I would get this car if I sold my house for over a certain amount. So, and I did. And part of the reason why I justified this car is because it doesn't hurt me to sit in it and to drive it it's in the right position for like my, my hip and stuff so that it doesn't impinge the nerves as much. It's the right position for my arms. And I mean, that's just, that's kind of huge and kind of everything, right? I have been in a ton of other cars that they're supposed to be either luxury cars or they're supposed to just be like day to daily drivers that are supposed to be really comfortable. And they just destroy me. I just cannot. Like the car that I rented in Arizona, I think it was like a Versa. It was like brand new. I only had like 200 miles on it. And my hips were just trashed by the end of the day, as were my arms. So I wanted a car that I could be comfortable in because getting to my doctor's appointments takes me a couple hours each way. And if I'm going to have to go there, why not make it enjoyable and minimize the amount of pain I'm in because pain burns a ton of energy and I already have dysfunctional energy batteries. I guess energy batteries is kind of redundant, but yeah. 
My car also has seat warmers, which is great when my glute is bothering me in general, kind of helps everything uh, loosen up. And my car fills a spot in me that wants a motorcycle because I miss riding. I used to miss it so much that when I would see motorcyclists out, it would like make me really sad. And if I saw like groups of bikes, I would actually cry and stuff. It was, it was just such a big part of my life and something that was just felt so natural and so me in a way that nothing ever has. People are like, but motorcycles are dangerous. And I'm like, no, other drivers are dangerous. Most motorcyclists don't die because they're on the motorcycle. They die because somebody wasn't paying attention and drove into them. If people drove better, if they didn't look at their phones when they were driving, if they didn't try to, you know, sneak through a yellow light that's turning red, if they just paid attention and were a little bit courteous, motorcycles wouldn't be considered so dangerous because we're not the problem. Car drivers are the problem. I only know one person that has died from riding a motorcycle where a car was not the cause. And in that case, he was under the influence because that's the other big killers, motorcycle, motorcyclists riding under the influence. Um, but that's preventable. He was under the influence. He was going over 100 miles per hour and he hit a deer. So, you know, yeah, he he set himself up. And if that sounds harsh, I'm I'm kind of harsh like that. I, I believe very strongly in a personal accountability. And it's not that it's not sad when people do things that hurt themselves, but it was preventable. He knew better. He'd been riding motorcycles his entire life. So, you know, my sympathy goes to his family, but yeah. Not so much to him because, you know, too late. Like one of my riding buddies who mentored me, he was killed because somebody was talking on their cell phone and decided to cut through a yellow light that turned red before they even like got past the crosswalk, uh, was not paying attention and just like cut in front of my friend who was not speeding. He was wearing full gear like did everything right. He, he was an MSF instructor and, you know, like he did two tours overseas and manages to survive that. And then like comes back here and gets taken out by some fucking dick who can't put their phone down for 10 minutes to get from point A to point B, you know? And the person who killed my friend never went to jail there's no like real accountability in those situations because it's labeled an accident. And let's be real. It's not an accident. It's negligence. Anyway, so I loved riding motorcycles. I grew up on it. It just felt like, you know, I used to joke that my cells were motorcycle shaped. It just felt like such a big part of me. And 
I wasn't super social in the sense that I didn't join any clubs or anything. Like I was invited to, but I just, I never liked the drama and I didn't like the obligation to be social and associated. Like sometimes I would ride with groups, but almost never did they follow the rules that I followed for safety. And so I wasn't like a big fan of riding with them. There would always be accidents that if they had like set up like guidelines for the riders wouldn't have happened. I just generally think that like the more people are connected through a thing, the more likely that it's going to become shitty. So I just prefer to like, mostly ride on my own and like ride with like one or two other people. If it was the weekend, um, I like doing track days. That was like really, really relaxing. You just go out and like practice over and over and over again, uh, getting through these corners and practice your lines and looking through them and the body positioning. And it's like weird because like sometimes everything would just feel wrong and you couldn't get your body to relax and do the right thing. And then all of a sudden it would just like, and you're like yeah and like being in the zone which was like really hard for me to find but when I would get in the zone like everything would just resonate perfectly and it was just like you know amazing so I I started not enjoying commuting on my motorcycle as much when I started working in San Francisco um not even because of the car drivers, but the other motorcyclists. The social behavior of the motorcyclists in the San Francisco area was was abhorrent. Uh, they didn't ride together. They basically competed. So, like, especially on the Bay Bridge, uh, you would be, like, lane splitting and say you're in the basically the safest lane for lane splitting, which is, um, I don't ever remember the numbers, but fast lane lane splitting between the the second to the fast lane and the fast lane is kind of where you're like taught to do that. And just uh, for clarification in California, it is legal as it is in most of the world to lane split or lane share. If you want to be technical, uh, most of the United States, it is not legal. And if you're in another country, you're going to be like, what? But yeah, it's not legal and it can be incredibly dangerous. Like people will open the doors on you to stop you from doing it because they get so outraged that you get to go first. It's uh it's a cultural issue. So yeah, in California, a lot of areas when you lane split, you catch up to another rider, you guys just ride together until you get to wherever you're going and then they the other one continues on and, and all that. Um, but in the San Francisco area, they pass you, everybody passes everybody. So then they're lane splitting in the wrong lanes, scaring the car drivers, which often causes the car drivers to close the gap on you when you're lane splitting in the correct lane and they're lane splitting at crazy speeds. Um, just, it was so dangerous. I saw like just irresponsible stuff like pretty much every day. And it made me so mad that people just had these really bad habits that I started not enjoying my ride into work anymore. And I started taking BART more, which of course then I would get upset on BART because like people were also rude there. 
And this is a theme for me. I have a really strong sense of justice and I get really like bothered when people don't do like these things that make the system work better for everybody, including themselves. That like selfishness, you know, like when you, when, when there's an elevator and you're supposed to wait for everybody to get off before you get on, it's the same thing for the trains, but here, like people are trying to get on while people are trying to get off. And it's like, it's like chaos and it doesn't work well. When I was in Singapore, I loved how organized the, the load on and off was for trains and elevators. Like people actually waited their turns and it was like super smooth and it went faster. And yeah, I liked that. I was going to like tell the story of like how my car came to exist or that line of cars came to exist. But like, I can't remember if I already told that story or not. So I'm not going to just in case I already did because I told somebody and I can't remember if it was the podcast, if it was you guys or if it was like a person I was talking to. So I will figure it out eventually. And then, yeah, if you know, you can always be like, Hey Lee, tell the story. And I'll be like, okay, okay. I'm going to tell the story. Okay. I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell the story. It's a cool story. If I had the money, the two things I would do to my car would be to get the ceramic coating and to get the exhaust changed out. I actually know exactly which one I would get. I have a YouTube video that I listen to sometimes because it sounds really, 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 really nice. And I would really, really, really love to listen to that while I'm driving my car and like, vroom, vroom. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, not, it's not a thing. I don't get to have that. I get to have the car and that's good enough. So I have this thing, like, People, people look at other people that they, they find attractive and they're like, whoa, attractive. I don't experience that. Very, very asexual. Just do not. Um, but I get it with vehicles. Like, it's not, it's not sexual, but I am definitely titillated and, like, it grabs my attention and makes me, like, Ooh, you know, it's, it's very similar reaction that I see when people see somebody that's attractive. It's just not, it's not like the same. I think it's coming from the same part of the brain and gives me some of the same kind of brain juices, but it's, it's not sexual. So, um, but yeah, like if I hear like a motorcycle, it's got the right kind of pipe and it just sounds like really well tuned and stuff. I'll get like goosebumps, like all the hair on my arms will stand up and I'm just like, whoa, you know, and like certain types of cars and the lines on the cars and stuff. Uh, you know, like one time, uh, I was on the freeway and the Supra like went flying past me. They had to be doing like a buck 50 and uh, oh my God, the engine sound as it went past me and the whole car like vibrated. And I was just like, I was just like, Oh, that was cool for like two days. It was awesome. I could like feel it, you know? And I like, I wish that people made me feel that way, but they just don't like, no matter how fond I am of someone, I don't get like that kind of titillation. I mean, maybe it's something that will happen with time uh, someday in my future, but I'm definitely not going to get it like 
on the spot with a random person like at all. It's just not wired that way. And I wonder what's going to happen like with all the electric vehicles coming out, you know, will I have the same experience? I, I love newer cars. I love like precision and technology. So I, I'm not like, oh no, electric cars are bad. No, I'm not, you know, I think like we need to move away from gas engines, like, you know, or motors, I guess motors, engines are electric. I don't know. Hold on a second. I got to Google that because now I'm like, that's really old information. Okay. So either of those work. I, I was raised that engine was like an electrical motor basically. And uh motor was gas powered, but um, I just found this article in MIT. I like the, I'm going to read the beginning cause I just, I like it. It sounds, it's all smart. As technologies and devices evolve, language must stay on its toes if we expect to understand each other when we talk about them. English speakers are particularly flexible at adapting to progress. They're willing to coin new terms, modify old meanings, and allow words that are no longer useful to them to pass from common usage. The etymologies of motor and engine reflect the way language evolves to represent what's happening in the world, says MIT literature professor Mary Fuller. The Oxford English Dictionary defines motor as a machine that supplies motive power for a vehicle or other device with moving parts. Similarly, it tells us that an engine is a machine with moving parts that converts power into motion. We use the words interchangeably now, but originally they meant very different things. Motor is rooted in the classical Latin mo- mover, I don't, I don't know, to move. It first referred to propulsive force and later to the person or device that moves something or cause movement. As the word came through French into English, it was used in the sense of initiator, a person that could be the motor of a plot or a political organization. By the end of the 19th century, the second industrial revolution had dotted landscape with steel mills and factories, steamships and railways, and a new word was needed for the mechanism, the mechanisms that powered them. Rooted in the concept of motion, motor was the logical choice, and by 1899, it had entered the vernacular as the word for duria and old's newfangled horseless carriages. Engine is from the Latin ingenium, character, mental powers, talent, intellect, or cleverness. In its journey through French and into English, the word came to mean ingenuity, contrivance, and tricker malice. In the 15th century, it also referred to a physical device, an instrument of torture, an apparatus for catching game, a net, trap, or decoy. In the early 19th century, the meanings of motor and engine had already begun to converge, both referring to a mechanism providing propulsive force. The first recorded use of engine to mean an electrical machine driven by a petroleum motor occurs in 1853. Today, the words are virtually synonymous. Language evolves to take on new tasks. So, um, yeah. Also, the person who corrected me on that a very long time was very, like, emphatic and, like, you know, I wasn't going to take a trip to the library. So, anyway, 
I don't know why my brain went there, but it did go there. I just hope that as we go into like an era of cleaner, cleaner, I mean, making the cars and recycling the car, it's none of it's clean, even without the, the gas, but the lack of like petrol will be better. And, um, I just hope that they make fun cars and beautiful cars, aerodynamic cars, you know, not fucking Priuses and Teslas. Ugh. The first Tesla that was based on the Elise was gorgeous, gorgeous lines. Every time I see one, I'm like, ooh. But, uh, you know, they're not making cars based on the Lotus Elise anymore. So, and they can put in the technology so that it feels like we've got a clutch and we have the control and all that stuff. I mean, there's stuff that they can do to make the cars fun. So I just hope that they do. Um, speaking of clutch, I think it's so weird that in the last few years, um, instead of a manual car being cheaper because automatic is like a, like a frou-frou thing, it's become the opposite and there's only like a handful of cars. I mean, I think it's literally like six cars or something on the market that have uh, a manual transmission now and you have to pay like more for them, noticeably more. And it's because they're driver's cars. Like, just, it's just a weird, a weird shift. I was like, man, I got to pay more because I actually want to drive my car. I mean, honestly, driving an automatic just makes me uncomfortable. I do not feel like I have good control of the vehicle. I feel like I'm more prone to making mistakes and being lazy. I I just, yeah, like a lot of people are like, oh, but being in traffic sucks. And, you know, it's really not that bad, especially like if you, you uh, keep your distance from the car in front of you. If the car in front of you is stopping and going a lot, you just put distance and then and then you can just, you know, go along in like second gear at really low RPMs. And for the most part, it works. Doesn't always work, but usually it does. And I wanted to say on the topic of motorcycles and like road safety, um, if if you're not from California and you come to California or one of the states where motorcyclists lane split more, don't don't adapt for them. You know, the if you're if you're ahead of a motorcyclist who's lane splitting and you want to move away from where they're lane splitting. So say you're in the fast lane, you want to move to the left to open up that gap. Do that. That's cool. But do it in a controlled way. Don't be like, oh, my God, swervy, swervy, McSwervy, you know. Uh, especially if the motorcyclist is already right next to you, they have already looked at the situation and assessed that there is enough space for them to get through. And you probably don't need to move at all if they're already next to you. And it's probably safer not to. Um, if you do move over, don't go on the shoulder. Okay. Uh, don't it's, you, you know, and especially at a high speed, like, like swerve over, like you're scaring the cars. Car drivers are like cows. They startle easily because they're not fucking paying attention. So don't do that. And don't don't go on the shoulder. And here's why. All of the debris that's in the lane gets pushed to the shoulder. And it's stuff like 
nuts and bolts and rocks and stuff. And when you go on the shoulder, you kick that shit up at the car behind you. If there's a motorcyclist behind you, like, yeah, don't do it. It's a safety issue and it's not cool. You will think that you're doing something nice for the motorcyclists. And a lot of motorcyclists will wave and thank you because it feels like kind of awkward when somebody like goes, oh, my God, and they move over really quick. You're kind of like, oh, thank you. But um, it's just you don't need to move that much. And to be completely honest, if there isn't enough space for a motorcyclist to get by and you to stay in your lane, they can wait. You know, they could wait. It's okay because there will be space soon enough as the traffic like moves around and stuff. And if you're in the lane to the right of the fast lane and you want to move over a little bit, you know, that's okay too, a little bit, but, you know, respect uh, your distance from the car to your right. Don't scare anybody by doing it really suddenly. Just kind of, just kind of over like, you know, I can't, you can't see what my hands are doing, but yeah. Just keep it smooth, keep it controlled, and and um, and trust that the motorcyclist sees more than you do, because they know the size of their motorcycle. They can see the distance between your car and the car on the other side, and the motorcyclists are the ones that are, are at threat. So, like, you don't need to take responsibility for that. Just own your shit. You know, like on the motorcycling community, we call it ride your own ride. Like, don't get caught up in what other people are doing and try to compensate for them because you're going to be making assumptions and you're going to be acting on assumptions and they could be the wrong ones. Um, so, yeah, like, that's something that when I see that on the road, it drives me crazy. Also, when you clean your windshield, pay attention to who's behind you. Ideally, clean your windshield when you're at a stop, not when you're on the freeway going 65, 70 miles per hour because you're just getting it on everybody else and that's rude. But if you have a motorcyclist behind you, you're getting it all over them and they don't have windshield wipers. So don't don't do that. I got like hit once where somebody had like a defective one and it just drenched me. I was so mad. I was like, oh, my goodness. Rude. And it had like some kind of cleaner in it. And it was just. Yeah. And when you're in a car and you're taking a turn on ramp corner, whatever, break before the turn, not in it. Okay. That's just physics. If you were driving an old car that did not have like, um, what the hell state stabilizing, what is that called? Like traction control and like the nice suspension and stuff. And you braked in a corner, you would have slid, you would have lost traction. The cars were nowhere near as forgiving. Um, and, just it's just like physics and it's not well taught but it's it's i've seen cars like what's the word spin out and lose control on the freeway because the driver swerved and hit their brakes at the same time and it's just like a habit that people do and you see it all the time and it's it's not it's not a good idea so like if you have a front right front wheel drive car and you need to swerve for some reason, like swerve, try not to hit the brakes at the same time. And when you get into the, the 
lineup that you want or the alignment that you want or whatever, so you're no longer swerving, then hit your brakes and brake before a turn. So, you know, you're like drive up to the turn and start taking speed off by gently hitting the brakes and then press the brakes a little bit more. And then as you go into turn, you're not even coming to a full stop. You're literally just like scraping the speed off. And then as you go into the turn, you let you take your foot off the brake because you should be at the speed that is safe for the corner at that point. You know, and it does take some practice to like get a gauge of what's safe and not safe. But um, most of the roads that have like a speed limit for a corner up, you just can go by those. You can just respect that, you know, and it will be fine for pretty much every vehicle except for ones that you're probably not driving unless you're like in a big rig or whatever. The added benefit of this particular habit besides like the safety is that um, you will be a smoother driver and the people in your life that get car sick will thank you for it. And I should mention that as you're scraping the the speed off and you take your foot off the brake at that point, you'd put your foot back on the gas. You don't necessarily need to accelerate. You can just maintain speed. But like if you want to feel like um, a little more control in the corner, just a little bit of acceleration uh, can make you feel more stable. Like if you were not to push on the gas at all uh, and the car kept slowing down, your car would be inclined to go wide, which means like go out to the outside of the lane. And like when you're in a turn, you kind of want to stay towards the inside. Obviously within the lines that are put there, don't be like going on the shoulder because we talked about that earlier. (laughs) And another thing that car drivers are not good at is looking ahead. Um, Like on a motorcycle, you're taught to constantly be scanning. So you're not just looking basically a vehicle's distance ahead of you, but you're looking like quite a few cars distance ahead and you're constantly scanning. So if there was anything in the road, you would see it before you get to it. And then you would be scanning. So you would continue to keep track of the thing in the road so that you can avoid it. But at the same time, you're still looking ahead so that you can see if there's anything else on the road or if the cars are slowing down or whatever. And um, a lot of car drivers don't do that. Like if if I'm behind a car, I can watch them and their eyes never even look at the rear view mirror, like hardly ever. Like they're just not scanning. And I'm constantly looking around at what's going on and aware and present because that's the only way to really stay safe um, if anything happens. And the other thing is to look where you want to go. So, you know, you want to be looking ahead, you want to be scanning and stuff, but when the time comes to go through a corner, you don't want to be looking off. Like if you have a right, a right hand turn or, or on ramp or whatever, you don't want to be looking off to the left at a building. You don't want to be, you know, you want to look ahead and your eyes are constantly, uh, moving towards and looking at where you want to go, which is of course, as you're moving constantly changing, So you turn your head, you look through the turn, and the body will naturally move things in the direction, you know, like 
it's especially so on a motorcycle because you're going to lean into it. Like in turning your head helps you do that. But even in a car, it's the same thing. Like if you look the wrong direction, your hands want to go that direction and you're more likely to like jerk the steering wheel or, you know, just, yeah. So those are all like, those are all things that I suggest to people on a regular basis when I have to be a passenger in other people's cars, because I am absolutely that person. And, you know, I'm not even sorry because it's, it's safety. I am suggesting things that make people better drivers, which means that I'm helping them be safer and I'm protecting the people around them as well. So, you know, um, there's probably more in there, but I honestly have not accessed the car slash driver slash motorcycle part of my brain very much in a couple of years. Like I, I mentioned before that I was too sick to even drive for a long time and I haven't done much driving since then. I drive a lot, but I don't drive. Um, I have gone out on a couple back roads and just kind of like enjoyed the really tight turns. Cause that's like, for me, that's my thing. It's not about like going a hundred million miles per hour, like eh, whatever. It's about control. It's about precision. It's, you know, getting through the turn at a, a higher rate than, you know, the turn is intended for you to get through and doing it like efficiently and precisely. And it just, it feels awesome. So like the tighter the turns, the better, you know? And, uh, the secondary benefit to that is when you fuck up on a road with really tight turns, you're not going that fast, you know, like you're going fast for the turns and you could be going faster than everybody else on the road if there's other people, but you're not going so fast that you're going to like fly off a cliff or whatever, because I've been on roads where people are going like 50, 60 miles per hour through a turn that's intended for like 15, 20 miles per hour. And, uh, and they fly off the cliff, you know? So (laughs) I have pictures actually. I, I almost got hit by the guy's motorcycle. I was on the, I was in the, on the, on the, whatchamacallit, the shoulder, kind of in line with the apex. Um, it was like a two apex turn and he lost control in the second apex. And I was like just off kilter and his, his motorcycle continued like just straight out of the turn, um, maybe two feet away from me and just flew off the, flew off the side of the road and dropped down pretty far. Um, and thankfully the guy stopped sliding before, before he reached the edge, but he was pretty close. And so I have a picture as the motorcycle's going down and you can see like his foot's no longer on the foot peg and stuff like that. So, um, that particular group had a tendency to have crashes like almost every weekend. Cause I used to go to these roads that were like, uh, just the motorcyclists would take over on the weekends and you hardly ever saw any cars and it was usually pretty safe. It was like that area did not, it would only have a couple of deaths a year, um, which you'd be like, well, that's a lot. Yeah. But you know, you get that at, at like the tracks and stuff too. Um, but in the Bay area, the back roads are getting like a death every week. So just for comparison, um, but you just go like you meet up at six in the morning you ride, you ride to the road, 
you ride the road for a couple hours, back and forth, back and forth. You know where the gravel is, you know where the oil is and stuff like that, because sometimes people in the neighborhood get pissed off at you and put oil down uh, to try to make you crash. And then... Um, and then you go get lunch and then you come back and do it some more or you go to a different road somewhere else and do it some more there. And I spent a lot of weekends doing that. You get like so much practice. It's lots of fun. This was, you know, a while ago and it could be different now. Uh, there are a lot more people on the road. There's a lot more people in California. It's just different now. But uh, when I moved up to the Bay Area from SoCal, it was People wanted to do the same thing, but instead of riding the same road over and over again, they would ride point A to point B to point C, you know, um, which is fine, except that they wanted to go really fast uh, on these roads, but they hadn't done the initial sweep. So they didn't know where the gravel was or where the oil was or where there was a log or anything like that. And that's like really dangerous. And so I would be riding with them and I would stay way back and like be going like, just above the speed limit so that I had time to react if I came through a corner and there was something in there. And, you know, it happened a few times that there was gravel um, or black ice on like the early morning rides. And um, I don't know how many times I saw somebody like low side because they hit gravel. But if, if they had done a sweep of the road first, they would have known was there. And then they could have safely gone a little bit faster uh, with, you know, with the idea that they would slow down for that turn or whatever. So the riding culture up here was just so different that I started doing track days and stopped riding with people as much because I just didn't, it didn't feel fun because it didn't feel safe. And if I did go for a ride, I found the people that were like responsible. So for a while I rode with a group of like cops. It was like a sheriff's deputy and a CHP and a city cop. And they all like rode together. They used to AFM race and stuff like that. And they were really good riders, really smooth, really in control. And I felt really safe riding with them and they had nothing but good things to say about my riding technique and stuff. Um, which was cool because I was really used to men kind of like talking me down. It was like, They'd be like, oh, you're doing this wrong. You're doing that wrong. Never mind the fact that I did track days and I literally took track classes with super bike racers where I learned how to do some of the things I did. You know, it's like I was doing it wrong because I was a female. That's all. So I was a guy. They would have been like, oh, where'd you learn how to do that? That's really, oh, you know, but uh, uh, toxic masculinity. <sighs> Well, I could probably just keep talking about that, but I'm not going to. I'm going to I'm going to wrap it up and I hope you learned something, at least one thing. And um yeah. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.